A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. It was like the stuff you read in the paper. You know, I mean, the papers kind of sensationalized things, but it was actually maybe 10 times worse than what the papers had any idea about. I had a magnetism about them. You know, you could say a glow of absolute confidence. They believed that race-based slavery was uh, an institution ordained by God, that it is the natural order of things. I remember we all stood up and we held hands and we said, whatever happens to us, happen to us together. We're all going to stay together. I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is episode four, Vine Street. Oh, glory, 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 glory to the Lamb. Behind just about every cult is a charismatic leader, and the 12 tribes is no different. Gene Spriggs was born in 1937 in East Ridge, Chattanooga, Tennessee, smack bang in the middle of the American Bible Belt. His father, Elbert, worked in a carpet factory called Dixie Yarns and was a scoutmaster in his spare time. He also had a seemingly insatiable appetite for salvation. He and his wife, Mabel, were originally Methodists, then moved to a Baptist church before settling on the Grace Tabernacle, an evangelical congregation centred around missionary work, charity and a steady supply of fire and brimstone. Jean's sister Joyce once told the local paper that she and her brother had practically been raised in church. Tall and square-shouldered, Jean was a gifted sportsman and won a football scholarship to Middle Tennessee State University before transferring to the University of Chattanooga, where he completed a Bachelor of Arts, majoring in psychology. It was the 1960s. There were protests, sit-ins, Vietnam, Woodstock, Charles Manson. Yet even by the standards of the time, Gene's life was uncommonly eventful. By the age of 32, he'd been married three times, had a son, joined the army, left the army, and cycled through a series of jobs, including tour guide, a year nine school guidance counsellor, and manager of a carpet factory, the same one his dad had worked in. He'd pissed people off, borrowing money and not paying it back. He'd also suffered what Joyce later described to Bob and Judy Pardon as some sort of nervous breakdown. In 1969, he was on the way to visit relatives in California when he stopped in Alabama to see a friend who owned a carnival. His friend asked him to stay for a few days and run one of the concessions. According to a biography of Gene on the official 12 Tribes website, his experience at the carnival shook him to the core. Gene saw vividly the depths to which mankind had sunk. He looked at all the freaks, the cheating, the immorality, and the mockery rising up on both sides of him, and it broke his heart. 
He claimed to have heard the voice of God, asking, Is this what I created you for? It was a pretty big question, and Gene didn't have the answer. But by the time he got to California, things had become a little clearer. He was walking along a beach just south of Santa Barbara when, as he later told a journalist, I knelt down and asked God to direct my life. I knew about Christ, but I didn't know him. And sure enough, God took my life. Christ made me a new creature. Duly reborn, he began working for the Santa Barbara Rescue Mission, standing on the median strip of Highway 1, handing out pamphlets about Jesus and talking to young people. Often he'd bring them back to the mission, which soon became overrun. Before long, Gene was envisaging his own outreach centre, aimed specifically at kids. The Rocky Mountains seemed as good a place as any to get started. Apparently it was full of people who'd opted out of society in search of meaning and a more peaceful life. And so, in the winter of 1971, Gene hit the road and headed east. He soon found himself in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It was snowing and the place was crowded with ski bums. Gene stayed in the basement of a ski lodge. Each morning he'd rise, Bible in hand, and head to breakfast, where he would attempt to spread the good news of Jesus our Saviour with his fellow guests. It's not clear how much success he had. He did, however, meet a young woman named Marsha Duval. Duval was from the West Coast and glamorous in a sun-kissed Californian kind of way, with wide-set eyes, pale gold hair and high cheekbones. She was also a decade younger than Jean, and a militant atheist. According to the Twelve Tribes website, she engaged him in spirited debate. Why did Christians dress up in fancy clothes and build big churches? Jesus had nothing, but these so-called Christians had jobs and homes and country club memberships. Jean, who it's important to note here was still married to his third wife, listened to Marsha intently. He read from the Bible. He spoke his truth. He must have been pretty persuasive. Soon he and Marsha were together. They drove back to California, where Jean got a divorce and promptly married Marsha. According to Bob and Judy Pardon, the Spriggs had plans to move to Florida. They set out then from California, stopping on the way at Chattanooga to repay some old debts. They then got jobs there and for one reason or another decided to stay, renting a little brown house on Ringgold Street in the west side of town. Gene still had his sights set on ministry, but not the starchy Sunday morning stuff of his childhood. There would be no pulpits, no suit and ties or stale sermons. What Gene dreamed of was looser, more vibrant, something that would combine a solemn commitment to God with the urgency of the counterculture and Jesus freaks. And so he and Marsha began inviting people into their home to sing and pray and talk about God. They began siphoning off worshippers from nearby churches and tapped many of the kids that Gene had taught as a school guidance counsellor. When they ran out of space, a local dentist, sympathetic to their cause, gave them the keys to a house he owned on Vine Street. Vine House, as it became known, was a big old two-storey timber home with peaked roofs and wide balconies. It was slightly set back from the road with a set of stairs and a neat front garden. 
The Spriggs began to host rap nights three times a week and invite people in for meals. The good food, music and company drew people in every week, some of whom never left. And so the Vine Street Christian Ministry was formed. It's unclear if the Spriggs actually had jobs at this stage. I've read mention of Jean working in construction and Marsha doing some waitressing. In any case, Vine Street needed more cash, and so Jean hit upon the idea of starting a restaurant. In 1973, the group rented a space on Brainerd Street and turned it into a cafe called the Yellow Deli. The building featured what would become the Twelve Tribes' signature aesthetic, rustic and down-home, somewhere between a frontier homestead and a hobbit's cave, with gingham curtains and an old wooden stove and baskets hanging upside down from the ceiling for lampshades. Most notable was the sign hung on the front door. Need a warm place to stay? Hitchhiking? Come stay a day. A Vine Street newsletter from the time featured a photo of Marsha and Jean serving fresh sandwiches to the community. It quoted Marsha. We try to serve the fruit of the Spirit, and it comes through. The love, joy, and peace, too. And when it comes over, it's real, not fakey, as the young people say. The Spriggs and their yellow deli crowd are great friends. And at the centre of it all was Jean. He was wearing a sweater sitting around an old spool table that had had leather put on top of it. And uh, it was just real rustic. It was hippie-ish, which we were back then. And uh, he seemed very sincere. So we were really attracted to it. Plus, his God forgave you. That's the way we felt. You were forgiven. A video published by the 12 Tribes tells the story of Ruhama, who joined in the early 70s after eating at the Yellow Deli. They were so warm and friendly and so inviting. They said, do you want to see the rest of the community? There's lots more people than just us. And you can come for a day or you can stay. And then... At some point, I went in to use the restroom, and there was a small, simple jar, clean, with clean water, filled with exuberance for life by someone walking through a city on the way to work. Daisies, clovers, buttercups, the only thing you would find in a city. And a voice spoke to me and said, If they take care of the flowers like that, they'll take care of you. Early on, the group decided that to attract young people, they had to follow the music. Members of the Vine Street community would go to Bob Dylan concerts or the Grateful Dead, handing out pamphlets and selling or just giving away food. Always with an eye out for the lost souls, the stoners, the drunks, the acid heads. They would administer first aid to anyone who needed it, feeding and tending to them, and talking all the while about the glory of Jesus. Later they would launch The Peacemaker, a 1961 GMC double-decker motor coach that they fitted out with mahogany and cherry wood interiors, leather upholstery and stained glass lamps. And it wasn't just concert-goers who were welcome. Anyone could hop aboard. As the sign on the back of the bus read, We know the way. We'll bring you home. At the same time, Jean was launching more Yellow Delis. Within a few years, the group had seven in Chattanooga alone. As he told the Chattanooga Times Free Press, 
Can you imagine what a wonderful thing it would be to have yellow delis all over America? A restaurant with good food for everyone in the community, but it would be a place to reach all the runaways who are passing through, or all the young people who are tired and mixed up. These people are not going to church. Sometimes they stop at shelters and gardens people being around the bush. They don't tell it simple like it is. Jesus loves you. You can be happy. Let God run your life. But Vine Street was in for a shake-up. Up until 1975, the Spriggs had used a number of local churches to host their sermons, the most prominent of these being the First Presbyterian Church in downtown Chattanooga. But relations between the Spriggs and the First Presbyterian had become strained. Gene was becoming increasingly hostile to mainstream Christianity, which he described more than once as the Whore of Babylon. He referred to the pastor at First Presbyterian, a man named Ben Hayden, as being of Satan. The last straw came one Sunday in February 1975 when the Vine Street crew showed up to the First Presbyterian to find it closed for the Super Bowl. Disgusted, Gene began holding services in a nearby park. There were other problems as well. Gene had taken to baptising people even though he wasn't recognised as a minister. And there was talk that he had secured a religious-based tax exemption while using his young acolytes to do construction work for free. Rumours of exploitation reached the local papers. Some members claimed that Gene was also exerting an unhealthy level of control over the group. By 1977, at least two Vine Street members had been deprogrammed by Ted Patrick and left the community. Some colleges had even prohibited their students from visiting the Yellow Delis. If anything, though, the warnings had the opposite effect. These were not hippies looking for a free ride. God was at the very heart of who they were. This was the Bible Belt of the South, where even drunks could quote you scripture as they fell to the floor. More than half of the members had left local religious colleges, Others were preachers or missionaries' kids. They would show the world what real faith looked like. I was interested in, um, in finding something real. This is Courtney, who was studying an arts degree in Tennessee in 1976 when she dropped out to start working in the Yellow Deli. I'd been raised in a uh, regular Sunday's church and I just wasn't satisfied with the status quo. I felt like there was something more. And it was and where she so... met her future husband, who was already living in one of the households. His first thought of me was that I was an artsy airheadist. And Courtney's first thought of him was that he was a bit of a jerk and a joker. But they clicked. Working side by side in the deli, their friendship grew and love followed. But as we got to know each other, we realised we were wrong about, you know, well, the first time he told me that he liked me more than just being a regular sister... I told him he needed to repent, but he was in the flesh. <laughs> he was already so in love with me. He doesn't even remember it, you know. My dear princess, have made me your king. So we, we got married at, at the Areopagus, and uh, uh, it looked like a little hippie wedding, you know, because I had a wreath of flowers 
And um, well, it, well, we both had a wreath of flowers, I think. Yeah. Oh no, he had a he had one of those uh, necklaces wow. of flowers, and I had a and I had a and I had a wreath of flowers. The community was growing. Members were meeting and marrying one another. The little Christian collective was becoming a family. Scott Zarnicki, who would later be known by his Hebrew name Han, joined in 1979 at the age of 23. Gentle and introspective, Scott, who was then working as a house painter, had just broken up with his girlfriend and was spending much of his spare time dropping acid and communing with trees. One day he was invited to a gathering at a bakery that the group owned. An old pickup truck showed up and a bunch of guys jumped off the back, you know, and, all, and everybody looks like a hippie. They all got long hair and beards and, you know, jeans and all that kind of gear. And so I felt very at home. And uh, about, I don't know, probably 60 people showed up. And everybody started going in the building. And, and so I went in with them. And I walked in that door. It was, um, it was like I went on to another planet. I looked around and I thought to myself, God has a home. He has a home. He lives here. This is it. God might have lived there, but Gene was now calling the shots. He was a commanding presence, big and burly, with a handlebar moustache, dressed in blue jeans, hiking boots and a rag wool sweater, a kind of God-loving Paul Bunyan figure. When Gene spoke, people listened. Of all the people I've ever met and encountered, and I've had so many conversations with so many religious people, and of all of that, Yannick is the only person I've ever met who made sense out of that book. Gene had his own ideas about the Bible. Established religion, the modern church, it was all just bullshit empty words and good intentions. As far as he could tell, the only real Christians, the true believers, were the earliest disciples, those who walked the earth in the first century after Christ, forsaking everything, their jobs, their belongings, even their families, to follow God. Tragically, their example had been obliterated over millennia by wannabes and pretenders, by all these so-called priests with their self-regard and empty ritual. It was up to Gene then to tear down that hollow temple and resurrect the first church. It would be a destiny many decades in the making, a journey requiring uncommon sacrifice and total submission. On Gene's road to salvation, there could be no compromise. There could be no dissent. By 1979, The Vine Street Church was on the nose in Chattanooga. There were accusations of child abuse and labour violations. People were using words like cult and mind control. Gene pushed back. He and four other church elders stood on a Chattanooga street corner for 14 days straight imploring the locals to heed their message or be handed over to a powerful delusion. Instead, they were accosted by two irate fathers whose children had been part of the group. And so Gene and Marsha began casting about for a new home. As it happened, a member of the Vine Street community had some friends who were trying to establish a Christian commune in a small rural town called Island Pond, in an area of Vermont known as the Northeast Kingdom. Would Gene come and show them how? Of course he would. 
Even better, he'd move his entire flock there. On the 26th of March 1979, the Chattanooga Times ran with a headline. Church to sell yellow delis, other properties and relocate. The Vine Christian Community Church, owner of the Yellow Deli restaurants and the subject of some controversy here over the past few years regarding its unorthodox style, is selling almost all of its businesses and properties here and plans to relocate the majority of its people to New England. One church elder called it a major shift in the church's direction. Mr. Gilbraith explained that the reason for the move is a general feeling that the Lord is directing us to other places, some of which there are people who have never even heard the name of Jesus, and that it's just a saturated Bible Belt town down here, Mr. Gilbraith said. People are just dull with it. Courtney and her husband moved to Island Pond in 1979 with their newborn baby boy. She cried that first winter. She'd never known cold like it. But everything was so new and exciting. She was put up in a house with 30 other people, most of whom actually got along. You do have human nature, you know, you have jealousies, you have things, but that was the thing that drew me to the community was I saw people working through their issues. You know, I saw actual forgiveness in action. And I thought, well, this place is real. And yeah, you're going to have problems. We weren't that naive. We knew there were going to be problems, but that we could address it, you know. And I think in the beginning, there were enough sincere people to keep it on the up and up. The group, which had grown to about 400 people, now called itself the Northeast Kingdom Community Church. Scott Zarnicki, or Hahn, was one of them. We had about 13 households spread out through that town. And a big building in the, in the middle of town, which was three stories, we used to gather up there called The Block. And we'd gather up there and, and uh, have our celebrations, singing and dancing on Sunday morning. We'd open all the windows, the whole town could hear us. We were quite an intrusion into a very conservative, small Vermont town. Gene was an inspiration. He started to develop an idea that, that, that the, the life that we were living was, in fact, the life that the God of all creation, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible, wanted and was going to fill the whole earth with, with our life, with a life of people who are completely and utterly devoted to loving one another at all costs. But the group was ruffling feathers. Some members lectured the locals, telling them that they were going to hell for smoking. Others were overheard calling the Pope a son of Satan and referring to various Christian denominations as daughters of the great mother harlot, the Roman Church. Vermont state authorities also started paying attention. It emerged that about half a dozen families were not sending their children to school. Courtney recalls a lengthy period of back and forth with officials. The state's concern was that you had uh, six or seven families that had children that were from high school to elementary age that had come out and um, were being homeschooled. And these families were being pursued by the state. It was like a year uh, building up tension between the community. And so instead of working with the state and saying, hey, let's get together, you can come see our children being educated. It was like they made it a, a religious thing that, you know, 
God has told you know, and it looked like we were religious freaks. As it turned out, homeschooling wasn't the half of it. One day, a community member came home from work to find his young daughter lying naked on the floor. Rachel was 18 months by then, 18 months old. She was laying without any clothes on on the floor, and one woman was over to the left of her, on her hands and knees down praying that my daughter would break. And uh, my daughter was nude. My wife had, I don't know, 20 or 25 of the rods that they used broken, that she had broken on her. It was the first time in my life I'd actually saw black and blue, and my daughter was bleeding from her thighs and her buttocks. Uh, and she looked like hamburger meat, black and blue from the back of her neck to the bottoms of her feet, actually spanked on the bottom of her feet. And I said, something has gone haywire here. And I went and called some of the elders and talked to them. We had a meeting. Come find out this was going on all over the community. Mm-hmm. But my daughter, Rachel, looked up at me, and the whites of her little blue eyes were so red, so not just bloodshot, but I mean red. She looked up, and it's all she could do is look up and say, Daddy, and fell down just down on the carpet, and I believe probably she was pretty close to death. Rather than taking her to the doctor, he hid her. From my parents, you know, so that my parents wouldn't find out. Back then, we had to keep them away from anybody. Treated it with comfrey poultices or something. Other rumours of abuse began filtering out. In 1982... Vermont social services were tipped off by former members about children being beaten. The police obtained names, dates and witnesses to abuse, even photographic evidence. But their inquiries were repeatedly stymied by the community. Whenever they visited, members refused to let them into their homes and wouldn't give them their real names. Other times, police were told that the children in question no longer lived there. Finally, in 1983... Charges were brought against a senior member and close friend of Jean's named Eddie Wiseman for assaulting a 13-year-old girl in the community. Jean Swantko, a well-known public defender in Vermont, then much admired for her feminist principles, was appointed to his defence. The case against Wiseman was dropped in 1985, but by then, Swantko had, in a bizarre twist, fallen in love with Wiseman and joined the group as she later told the media. I guess the fact that I'm in the community now speaks for itself. (laughs) Swanko became the group's in-house lawyer. She would have her work cut out for her. By 1984, the Vermont State Authorities were closing in on the community. We had to go, we were told to go hide in Maine, so we took off to Maine and hid up in Maine for a few days. At dawn on the 22nd of June, 1984, 90 state troopers and 50 social service workers descended on the Island Pond community. I had two children and I was pregnant with my third during the raid. I was like seven months pregnant. I was huge. I was, you know, waddling around like a whale. It was a terrifying thing. I had a policeman wake me up five o'clock in the morning and, and had a policeman standing in the room while uh, I'm getting my children up and getting them dressed. We were never left alone. The only thing I was allowed to do privately was get dressed 
and go to the bathroom. Other than that, when my children, taking my children to the bathroom, there had to be a policeman in the doorway supervising my children going to the bathroom. Now, in our house, it was very peaceful. The police were very respectful. Most of them really hated what was going on because there was nothing really, you know, we were all cooperating. It wasn't like that in every house. Some of the houses, it was more chaotic. You know, like we got our children dressed. They allowed us to feed them breakfast. Uh, and uh, we refused to allow our children to get on the school buses without us. And so they allowed us to come with them. My husband was in Boston, so I called him, let him know. So he met us in Newport uh, where they were busing us to. The police took 112 children into protective custody. Together with their parents, the children were loaded onto buses and taken to court in Newport, half an hour away. But the raid backfired spectacularly. A judge deemed the state's intervention illegal and ruled that the children be returned to their families. By now, the case had made headlines around the country. The group's victory set a precedent in raids on churches and religious communities. The director of Vermont's Civil Liberties Union described it as a huge win for religious freedom, declaring that something similar wouldn't happen for at least another 50 years. He believed the authorities had learned their lesson. Vermont's Defender General agreed. The principles in this case were enormous. The stakes were enormous. God help us if the courts had come out the other way. But to some who were living in the community at the time, this was no victory. In their eyes, the investigation had been botched. You know, they came in looking for evidence of the allegations, yeah, which is yeah. that's totally unconstitutional. I mean, you know, police officers don't have a right to come in your house and look for evidence. Oh. It was total legal and technical bungling. If they had investigated the allegations by the specific people who made them to the specific people who perpetrated them and gathered evidence and then brought a warrant for that person and his child to see the child or evidence of, of child abuse. You know, that would have been the way to do it rather than just go in pell-mell and just herd them all in. Let's see if we can find one. You know. But despite the outcome, James and his friend Michael Painter knew the allegations were true. I'll state unequivocally there was child abuse in the community. A lot of that was from ignorance out of people wanting to obey, you know, Gene Spriggs who had no children in the community. It was like the stuff you read in the paper. You know, I mean, the papers kind of sensationalized things, but it was actually maybe 10 times worse than what the papers had any idea about. We both seen children beat to almost the point of death. My daughter you know, for one, Rachel. My daughter for another. In time, the raid became imbued with spiritual significance, equivalent to Exodus for the Jews a foundation story in which a hardy band of righteous disciples suffer persecution at the hands of the state, only to emerge victorious. It confirmed Jean's belief that the group was truly anointed and that their destiny was God-given. Every year, the community would mark the anniversary of the raid, with children standing up before the group and confirming that they were never abused. 
children themselves. In 2004, the 12 tribes released a documentary produced and directed by Jean Swanko called The Children of the Island Pond Raid. The zeal of the social workers became unleashed to confidently intrude into the lives of these little ones as if they were doing them a great favor. But now, the children of the raid have come of age, and they've put their boots on. Here they are to speak for themselves. I remember we all stood up and we held hands and we said, whatever happens to us, happen to us together. And I remember waking up that morning and I looked out the window and all I saw was police car, next police car, more police cars. And Pretty soon the streets were just lined with police cars. All the families were all together in the living room, and then they took each child separately away from our parents into the dining room, and I remember two policemen getting on either side of me, um, holding each one of my arms and kneeling down to get a picture taken. That was very scary to me. The raid was ruled unconstitutional and the investigation closed but it signalled a shift in the group's approach to the local community. Followers began opening up more. Public meetings were held in order to teach the townsfolk what the group was all about. Journalist Barbara Harrison went along, later writing a piece for the New England Monthly, in which she described how formerly disaffected members were now backtracking on their allegations of abuse. Harrison wrote... August 28th, members of the press were invited to hear a man who was a member publicly repent. He shared a platform with Eddie Wiseman, the elder he had accused of beating his daughter until she looked like a zebra. The man said that his daughter had lied when she signed a deposition to the court, saying that she had been beaten. The ordeal had made the child freer and lighter, and the scourging and the controlled severity had produced the fruits of the spirit. In 1987, the Northeast Kingdom Community Church changed its name to the Messianic Communities. To mark the occasion, 300 members walked en masse into Island Pond Lake to wash away the ills of contemporary Christianity and be reborn as the one true church. According to Courtney, it was a great time to be part of the community. On Saturdays, they would go swimming or hiking or camping or just rest until the breaking of bread. Members would bring in the new year with a street gathering and sing and dance and deliver prophecies for the year ahead. They drank hot chocolate and ate cookies. It was a mixture of fellowship and friendship. The fun times and the struggles had bound the community together. Courtney's husband was working in Boston a lot, so the single men in her house became like older brothers and like uncles to her children. Han and the men would read her children a bedtime story or take them for a walk or swimming down at the lake. She trusted them implicitly, and her kids enjoyed being with them. It was safe and communal, and certainly more meaningful than what was happening in the outside world. But things were slowly changing. For a start, Jean started to borrow more heavily from the earliest days of the church and from the Old Testament. Accordingly, everyone in the Messianic communities was to adopt a new Hebrew name. 
Jean became Yonek, meaning sprig or tender plant, and Marsha, Harmek, meaning guard of the valley. And there were lots of rules, for example, about cheese. No cheese. Throw that hard cheese out. We don't eat it. You can't get a good Jew to eat it. It's bad for your system. You have to get something else to compensate for it because it constipates you. And about vegetables. We could be guilty of second or third degree murder if we cook vegetables that shouldn't be. Beets don't have to be cooked, but just cut up small. Millet does need to be cooked, however. We should eat the whole apple to get the B-17 from the seeds. Chew them up well. It is impossible to get cancer with B-17. We must chew our food properly. And air conditioners. If we have an air conditioner and we don't know when to turn it on and when to keep it off, we'll destroy our children. We'll never see the third generation. There were even rules on masturbation and head coverings and language. Children were never to be called kids, only ever children. Then came the racism. What a marvellous opportunity that blacks could be brought over here to be slaves so that they could be found worthy of the nations. A good master would work by the sweat of his brow. If his slaves were lazy and disrespectful, he would beat them, which is what he was supposed to do. Right now, I'd describe it as completely stupid. <laughs> but back then, I was, I was the one that was stupid. I was fully indoctrinated into the community. Sinister Colucci is mixed race, black, Cherokee, and Irish, with an Italian mother. The 12 tribes taught that the only way towards righteousness for a, a black man is to be submissive to white men. So race-based slavery was uh, an institution ordained by God that it is the natural order of things. So if you're black, you're to be submissive to whites. That's what they taught. You know, the idea is God made these races of man. Sociologist Dr. Susan Palmer discussed this teaching with Yonek when she met him for an interview. They encourage people in their group to marry people of their own race. But on the other hand, if people are coming and they're married to someone of a different race, then the husband's race becomes the kind of official race. Then there was this teaching from Yonek. Multiculturalism increases murder, crime and prejudice. It goes against the way man is. It places impossible demands on people to love others who are culturally and racially different. This is unnatural, like trying to love sodomites. That one confused people, because not long after, Yonek issued another edict that everyone all ate meals with chopsticks to make foreign visitors feel more welcome. Grooming also became a big deal. Men had to wear their hair down to their collar and grow a beard, since it was only the evil Romans who'd started shaving. The alternative, according to Yonek, was to look like a Baptist, a white-collar crook, hippie or a slob. Of course, all these strange rules weren't really about the rules themselves. They were about control. By the early 90s, Yonex saw himself as largely untouchable, the apostle-in-chief with a direct pipeline to God. He and Marsha were spending most of their time outside the US, scouting locations for other settlements. And yet he was flexing more authority from afar than he ever had before. His control is the uh, one common denominator that marks every one of the communities. Over the years, Yonek cultivated grey, mid-length hair and a beard to match with thin-rimmed, owlish glasses. There are very few photos of him. The picture that most often comes up online 
is of him standing outside at what looks like a lectern or a makeshift pulpit, addressing a crowd which is just out of frame. He looks like he could be talking about composting or the best ways to preserve lemons. Dr. Susan Palmer recalls meeting Yonek in 1993. But I found him actually very kind of, just like an old hippie, you know, very calm, very kind of laid back. And he even sort of said, oh, you have to ask my wife. I don't know, you know. And I've never heard a, a cult leader say, ask my wife, you know. It was partly he was just wandering around and people said, oh, he, you can talk to him now. I, I said I wanted to talk to him. I didn't even know he'd be there. And so then I went over and talked to him in a corner. And, you know, it was very informal. And I wasn't, I didn't feel he was trying to zap me with his charisma. Like, I, I definitely felt that meeting other, you know, I I went to see, I mean, I've seen a lot of really famous leaders of new religions, and I, I've been zapped, or I've tried to zap me anyway. But in this case, I was just, oh, this is a nice guy, you know, he's pretty laid back. He could articulate the Bible extremely well. Mark and Rose met him on their trip to Spain. Um, Unique had a lot of authority. So he was just speaking at gatherings. And each time Unique was speaking, they were recording him like he was some sort of incredible guy, you know. And he was giving teachings and talking. and mm. um, They were translating, obviously, because he's a translation. He's at the gathering, there's French, Spanish, English, and some Germans there. So they needed to translate because he speaks English. And he was so arrogant, even the community in France, he said you, they have to learn how to speak English. Also, there's the fact that he had a narcissistic personality. So that's the thing. That's what you would get out of it. You know, a narcissist would basically become into a, to the stage where it's just full control. He had a magnetism about him. Uh, you, you know, you could say a glow of absolute confidence. He could be scary too. His spirit check that he would do up with young disciples, you know, come up behind them and slap them as hard as he could on their back and see what their reaction was, see if they turned around with their, with their dukes up or or uh, would yell at them or whatever, uh, or turn around and look at them and say, what was that for? So it was just a spirit check, he called it. He would look like, you know, a loving grandfather or a father, just a, a warm figure, but then... Still, there was a part of him that was like, uh, be careful. He's powerful, and you don't want to cross him because he does have a temper. If you were to question him, you never questioned him. I mean, if you question him, you're questioning God. But not everyone was in awe of the Anointed One. I have to say I was disappointed. When I met Yonek, I, I saw a lot of hypocrisy. I saw an angry, mean man. There was this incident where there was a woman at the gathering that was a little bit overweight. Yonik looks at her this, in the middle of the gathering, 100 or 200 people around, and he, he yells at her, like he said, you're fat. You are fat. And he like, basically he tells her she needs to repent for overeating. And it's like, just all this shame publicly that he's just heaping on the woman for being slightly overweight. That man was a manipulator. And that was the evilness of him. He enjoyed the manipulation. People said that he had money, that he was secretly living the high life. US cult investigator Rick Ross once called Yonek a jet-set cult leader. When Eddie Wiseman's son, Zeb, defected in 2001, 
He told of Yonex's extravagant lifestyle, travelling by chauffeured car and going on shopping junkets with Marsha. The community certainly had no shortage of expensive toys, including a 38-metre, three-masted private yacht called the Avani, which featured Limoges porcelain, spas and handcrafted mahogany finishings. But not everyone got to enjoy the good life. Eddie Wiseman needed some wider shoes. I had uh, the shoe shop and I ordered him some Clark shoes, which are a wider type of shoe. Everybody else in the community was wearing Rockports, which are an expensive shoe, except that I bought them for $10, put a new aisle in them, repaired them, and then the community got them very inexpensively. Well, I ordered the, um, these other shoes for Eddie, which I sold them to him at cost, which was like $45. They were $90 shoes. He came into the apostolic workers meeting or elders meeting and Gene Spriggs jumped all over him for having those shoes. He just went crazy. Hi, oh, everybody's going to want those shoes now. You know, if they see Eddie Wiseman wearing those shoes, everybody's going to want them. And uh, so he made Eddie bring the shoes back and give them back to me and had me give them to somebody else who didn't have any money or anything like that. And then I was down in Boston and Bill Hinchliffe, I looked in his closet and I said, what are you doing with all these, uh, no high techs, those real expensive. New Balance. Like, New Balance, they're like $179 hiking boots. And there were five pair of 10 and a half Ds in the closet. And I said, what, what are you doing with those? You wear eight and a half. He said, oh, those are your nakes, Gene Spriggs. He said he can't get them in France, in Europe, and he's gonna take them to France here because he always wore these uh, New Balance real expensive hiking boots. That, that was just an example, but he had just, this was two days earlier, he got on Eddie Wiseman for having a $42 pair of shoes. Well, he, he wasn't, like if you saw him walk down the street, it wouldn't be like, uh, well, that guy has a million bucks. I mean, he didn't wear Rolexes and, you know, Armani suits and things like that. But compared to one of the elders here whose uh, toes are sticking out of the front of his boots and the knees are out of his pants and his shirts and tatters, and uh, Gene Spriggs walks in, he has the latest L.L. Bean polar fleece shirt and jacket, and you know, he's got the... Banana Republic uh, pants. Yeah, the high-tech hikers. Relatively speaking, okay. he lived as a very rich man. By the mid-1990s, Gene, or rather Yonek, had spread his flock across the world with communities in Europe, South America, Australia and beyond. He had also decided to change the group's name yet again to the Twelve Tribes, after the fabled Twelve Tribes of Israel. The group's troubles were in the rear-view mirror now. Or so it seemed. Six, seven children that he brought in and watched him throw the fetus into the furnace. It was a case of bestiality. You know, it involved a number of animals on, on the farm. My dad ended up pretending to be her dad because they looked very similar. You know, most people there do that are older, gray hair, beards and stuff. So, you know, just based off of kind of a point blank description. You've been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott, 
My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi. Editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. Special thanks to Bob and Judy Pardon from Meadowhaven.org for their foundational research into the early years of the 12 tribes. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273-TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high-control group, can be found in the show notes.